0: night, brothers and sisters. Nice to be with you. This is Chris, and you're listening to Tangentially Speaking yet again. Uh, welcome to those of you for whom it's not yet again, for whom it's the first time. Welcome. Hope you'll stick around, join the party. Uh, this is part of the continuing series of conversations with veterans of um, United States foreign policy snafus. John Deal is the guest this week, who's a lovely young guy uh, that is working on a a farm here in Portland. So I did this one in person. It was really nice to be able to sit down on a picnic table out by the garden and chat with him about his experiences. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, Listening to it again yesterday when I was putting this, uh, this episode together. I was reminded of, uh, just how, uh, authentic and smart and kind and open-hearted this guy is. And, uh, you know, it's really, it's always an honor when someone opens up to you, you know, they don't know you, uh, you know, we, we get into this thing again about how people sort of know me because they listen to the podcast, whatever, but it's the first time he sat down with me, first time we've met each other and, um you know it's always it's always beautiful and uh touching when someone is so trusting and open not only with me but with you right he knows you're listening to this he knows there are lots of you out there that that he's never met that he might run into um so there's a lot of uh a lot of trust going on especially when you're talking about difficult things um, john talks about some difficult experiences he's had and uh and the process of of trying to overcome and recover and integrate these these experiences into life. Which is why I wanted to do this series anyway, right? Because a lot of these people who have um, been in the military, they come home and they just feel isolated and alone. Nobody understands what they went through. And uh, it's one of the tragedies of our culture that we send people into these bizarre uh situations and expect them to perform train them to perform and then they come home and they're just supposed to fit right back in and uh, that's very very difficult if not impossible so anyway this is a great conversation i really enjoyed it um and i hope you do too a few notes before we get into it uh new shirts available finally uh, for those of you who listen to the talking out my ass sub podcast uh, we've got some Toma shirts, talking out my ass shirts that were designed by Adam McDade. He's an illustrator. You can see his work at Adam McDade, uh, M C D A D E dot Weebly, W E E B L Y dot com. That's Adam McDade dot Weebly dot com, and of course there's a link to his page if you uh, go to the order form on my site. You, uh, Chris Ryan, PhD. You'll see the store, go to the t-shirts, and you'll see the Toma t-shirts, and there's a link right there if you want to go to a site from there. Um, What else? Oh, an update on the Tangentially Speaking book project. Uh, Many of you wrote in and volunteered to do transcription or uh, organization or, you know, track down guests and all this kind of stuff, and it's wonderful. probably have about 50 emails saved from people who wrote in to volunteer. Um, I got back to some of you. Some of you have just been saving your emails. Uh, another friend sort of uh, volunteered to try to organize the thing, and it's just the more we get into it, the more we see how much work it's going to be and and uh, how complicated it is. We're sort of stuck right now at a stumbling block where, well, do we have to form a business then, you know, because what if somebody sues us? And, you know, it's all this sort of legalistic business bullshit which I really hate, Um, but the good news is that I've been talking to um, a group of people who work in a small creative agency that does different things. They do a little publishing, they do a little web design, they do some um, sort of project management for various uh, companies, uh, really cool people. And uh, so we're talking about maybe having them take over the book. So we'd still be working with volunteers, people who listen to the podcast, who want to be involved. You, you know, it would be great to have you involved in various levels. Uh, we've got some people, some guests who are excellent artists. We'd love to include some of your art. And, you know, so we're talking about all these different things. But um, if we work out a deal where everyone's happy with this agency, you'll sort of take over the project. So I won't have to be. Dealing with it too much on a day-to-day basis. So I'll keep you posted on that and see how that develops. Uh, I spent a long day yesterday with a guy named Colin who's from Man-Made Lake, uh, a really good band based in uh, Victoria, British Columbia. He and his wife drove down and uh, we recorded a podcast in the park. We met about two o'clock, and I think we st- we were hanging till two in the morning. It was uh, a long, crazy, fun day, and um, you'll be hearing that podcast coming up soon. I've recorded a lot of really good ones recently. Um, a guy who flew up from the Amazon uh, was west was down in the Amazon uh, doing uh, doctoral research and. For his anthropology uh, doctorate at Cambridge, flew up to Portland, hung out here for a few days. And now he's back in Cambridge. Um, you know that's a, that was a fantastic conversation. Uh, Justin Alexander, another world traveler. He's on a motorcycle trip through North America right now. He stopped in and we uh, we had a great conversation as well about travel and and uh, some of the crazy stuff that he's doing you can check him out at uh, adventures of that's his blog and i uh, really recommend that uh you go to his blog and then i think you, there's a link there to his instagram account he, he takes some amazing photos and he's doing some really interesting stuff he was hiking in the himalayas like way into tibet and that kind of you know like way the fuck out and then he was living on an island uh, off the coast of Sumatra with some hunter-gatherer people for a while. Really interesting travel stuff, and he gets some fantastic photographs. So check him out. That conversation's coming up as well. Plus, I talked to this couple, the Dangers, who uh, you know were living in their van for uh, a year. They drove down to Costa Rica with their dog in this van, and then they got into the tiny house movement. And you know, the sort of movement of simplifying your life and enriching it by actually spending a lot less money and focusing on, um, you know, quality rather than quantity. So there are a lot of really good podcast episodes coming up. they will be, I've got like 10 in the can right now. Um, It's kind of uh, embarrassing because I don't want, I feel bad that people have to wait two or three months till their episode comes out. I'm tempted to just release them all, you know. Um, but the problem is I keep thinking like, okay, I, this way I don't, you know, I cannot record for a couple of months and I've, I've got stuff to keep it going while I write. I don't know what's wrong. That never seems to happen, but it's like saving money. You don't spend. Hmm. Anyhow, that's, uh, that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, thanks for your support. Uh, Nolan, thank you very much. People send donations. Nolan sent a great big donation this morning. That was really wonderful to to uh, wake up to. Uh, thanks to everybody. Big, small, whatever. And if you don't have any cash, don't worry about it. Nolan got you covered for this month. <laughs> uh, uh, but for if you do want to support the podcast, the best place to do it is at Fund What You Love. It's a, a sort of monthly Thing that you know you can pledge a buck, whatever, and it'll take it every month. So I sort of have an operating budget. Um, but in any case, thanks to all of you, whether you uh, have the extra cash or not, I'm really glad you're here. Glad you're listening to the podcast and you're part of this community. And uh, I will catch you next week. Enjoy this conversation with John Deal. Before we go into it, I'm going to play one of uh, my favorite songs by one of our listeners, friend of the podcast, Ed Dupas. The song is called Flag and uh, I think it's very appropriate to this conversation. Hope you have a good week. Catch you next time.
1: The flag goes up As the sun comes down Jets go by before we hear the sound Rise to our feet As if to say Red, white, and blue Till our dying day The flag waves high When the taxman comes He says you gotta pay Just to be someone Yeah, it'll cost you plenty If you want to stay Red, white, and blue Till you die dying day. Now the flag hangs still When the wind don't blow They keep the TVs on To let the people know they gotta toe the line. Yeah, there's a debt to pay, red, white, and blue, till their dying day. The flag comes down and they fold it nice and hand it to somebody's wife. And nothing to do, nothing to say. It's red, white, and blue till it's dying day. flag goes up and the sun comes down Jets go by before we hear the sound rise to our feet as if to say red, white and blue till I die in day red, white and blue till I die
0: john i remember it's john jacob but what's your last name uh, deal deal john yeah. John deal um on a beautiful farm in southeast portland this is uh this is amazing i'm looking out at uh pumpkins and beans and tomatoes and there are chickens all around and pigs and goats and
2: and yeah, we we've got a menagerie out here <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's beautiful yeah thank well, you it's be great out here when it's raining
2: um well, yeah, it rains a lot. You know that. So yeah. we we do what we can. It's not no. it's not bad.
0: No, I mean, I'm serious. I would yeah. love to be out here when it's raining.
2: I love just, hearing the sound of the rain yeah. on the tin roof over the feed room back yeah, there. Exactly. Just, and these yeah.
0: big trees and mm-hmm. waving in the wind and stuff. It's, yep. It's beautiful out here. Um, all right. So this is uh, part of the continuing... Uh, vet series. I have it I don't have a name for it. Yeah. But you're you're the third <laughs> vet I've spoken to and we'll probably get to six or seven by the time it's all done. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh yeah, let's just how did you get here? You, we talked about it briefly. You're from Georgia originally?
2: Uh long way roundabout. Uh I was uh. a military brat. So my dad was in the Air Force the whole time I was growing up. So I've lived a bunch of different places, uh, but I was born in Georgia and I did move here from there. But it was the second time I had lived there. It was much later. All right. I got you. Yeah. So moved to Portland from Georgia. I was. I don't know, it kind of snuck up on me how long I had spent down in Georgia. Six or seven years had gone by pretty quickly and I was not too happy with where I was and just wanted to come to a more progressive place i guess you could say yeah i don't know i felt i felt kind of oppressed down there in, in a way what
0: part of georgia were you
2: uh northeast georgia i was living okay. in I've athens for East. a while oh, i know athens is yeah. like the austin of georgia Yeah, exactly right? yeah. exactly yeah i was there for a couple of years and that was cool and then i moved to a town about 20 miles west of athens called jefferson mm. and uh different different climate i don't know i, I mean i am uh pretty far left leaning there I guess you could say here I feel like I'm more to the conservative side of
0: it. so you're a Portland it, redneck a Georgia hippie yeah
2: exactly I'm <laughs> stuck somewhere in between no matter where I go I'm yeah. doing it wrong yeah, So
0: you're doomed we're yeah. all doomed I know what you mean man. Yeah. in Spain I'm a fucking foreigner here I'm, yeah. I, I feel like a foreigner here I look normal yeah. I guess but I feel like a foreigner
2: I would rather uh, deal with people who are you know I don't know granola-eating crystal gazers or whatever you want to say than, uh, you know, intolerant,
0: yeah. racist,
2: homophobic assholes. And, you know what I mean? Like, if you have to deal with an extreme, either the left or the right, I'm much happier yeah. dealing with the Portland variety. Yeah, you're less likely to get beat up by yeah. uh, hippies yeah. than <laughs> There There's that.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, uh, Yeah. definitely. Did you, when you were a kid, were you uh, always stateside or did yeah. you do international? Outside? No, I was
2: always stateside, but we didn't stay anywhere for... More than a few years, usually. So,
0: That's rough. I, mm-hmm. I sort of had a similar upbringing. My dad wasn't in the military, but just because of circumstances, mm-hmm. we ended up moving uh, quite frequently. I went to three different high schools, and at some point we calculated that... That we'd lived in, that I had lived in 20 different houses by the time I got out of high school.
2: Man, yeah, it was, I wasn't that bad. Well, but
0: some of them were in the same town, so it wasn't as bad as it sounded. Like, he was just making more money, get a promotion, Mm -hmm. get a bigger house, move to a better neighborhood, and then, oh, now you're going to the central headquarters, (laughs) we got to go to Pittsburgh, and then New York, and yeah, and then he get fired, and then we have to go here, and then lost that, and you know, it's like... Tumultuous. Yeah. So the the end
2: result was always being the new kid in mm-hmm. school, which I guess was your case as well. Yeah, I mean you you learn to deal with it. I guess you you learn how to uh, what's the book "Win Friends and Influence People" or whatever, or not give a or, shit, or
0: either one. Yeah, or pretend you don't give a shit, which is what I did.
2: It's tough when you're a kid, though, because yeah. you really, I think you f- you feel that kind of outsider feeling very strongly.
0: Yeah, community is is your your lifeblood, mm-hmm. you know. And I read somewhere there's some study I read recently that um, being excluded from a group of friends is psychologically one of the most traumatic experiences. Mm-hmm. Not just for kids, for adults, for anybody.
2: Yeah, it's painful. Yeah,
0: because it's it's like, and I think it goes back to the the hunter gatherer thing where like. You know, if you fuck up so bad, yeah, the worst thing that they'll do, some tribes they'll just kill you uh, and you won't even see it coming. But the ones that won't kill you, what they'll do is ban you from the croup. Mm-hmm. So that, like, you you got nothing, man. Right.
2: And I mean, in some cases, or oftentimes, I would guess those would be your kin too, or at least yeah. people you're partially related sure. to. So, you so grew it's up not with just you're getting and, yeah. kicked out of your community, but your own family is like, get the fuck out. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Rough. It's yeah. rough out there for a pimp. It is. Um, so you, so you grew up moving around a lot. Mm-hmm. And so, do you have siblings?
2: Yeah, I do. I have a, a younger sister who's three years younger than I am. Uh-huh. I'm 33, so she's she's 30. I have a half sister from my mother's second marriage who's 13. Uh-huh. And my uh, dad and his wife um, adopted a girl from China, and she's I think she's like 11 now.
0: Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So your, but your younger sister moved with you, so you had yeah, yeah, that that was yeah. the
2: that was like the one stable element that we had was usually the the family unit it was my dad, my yeah. mom, my sister, and me, and we were, you know, yeah, our own little four person tribe.
0: Yeah, that's that's same thing with me. My sister's four years younger, mm-hmm. and I think she she um, adapted in a different way than I did.
2: Yeah. I don't, did my, that with you? Yeah, my sister was she was much more of a chameleon. I mean, we would move from north to south, exactly. she would have the accent changed. Fuck man, man. that's exactly what I was just yeah. gonna
0: say. My sister adopted the local accent immediately.
2: And I was I would always get pissed because I would be like, Why why are you well, first of all, I, I felt it has to be fake, you know? So yeah. she's gotta be just doing it to be accepted. And secondly yeah. I was kinda jealous, I think, like, how can you just change yourself? How can you flip around that way that quickly and I'm here struggling, you know? So yeah. it was I was always a little annoyed, but a little jealous at the same time. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I
0: I remember feeling annoyed by it, but not really jealous. Uh, I I, I felt, I think what I was annoyed by, you know, and and annoyance often comes down to shame or, you know, some sort of judgment against the self. But Mm -hmm. I, I, I felt how desperate she was and how vulnerable she felt. And as her older brother, I felt like I was failing mm. to protect her. And I was, unfortunately, I was just self-aware enough to sense that, but not self-aware enough to do anything right. about it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Which is a t- terrible place to be in the middle of that, you know, crossing the river, you don't get to the other side. Yeah. <laughs> you just stand there getting wet. Um. Yeah. Yeah, my sister doesn't listen to this podcast. So I don't, I don't <laughs> mine
2: doesn't her. either. So there you go. <laughs> I,
0: I still feel bad about it, though. Yeah. Like she was, you know, I should have I should have been more protective and taking care of her, but instead I just was like, "God damn, you're yeah. irritating." You my know?
2: my sister really. We, well, there's that period of time when you're both kind of in your early teens, or she's like a tween, and I'm in my. Earlier, or mid-teens, or whatever, and you're competing for the same resources. Like everyone wants to be on the same phone and watch the same TV and be on the same computer at the same time. And we butted heads, or I would want to play the drums while she was with a friend, and I, you know, whatever. I it's would do it to piss her off. Just a pain in the off. ass to live it, in the same yeah, house. it, it was. Yeah. But uh, once we, uh, once my parents got divorced, uh, I was 16 and she was like 13, and. uh I don't know, after that, after spending that time apart and then not being in conflict in our teenage years, coming together as adults, we had a much stronger relationship. Yeah. And I think it was ultimately a good thing.
0: Yeah, well, I, I kind of feel like that's happened for me with everyone in my family, that mm-hmm. not living together was the key. Yeah. Which makes me think it's a good uh, a good element of marriage as well.
2: I've had that same thought. You know, it's like the familiarity breeds contempt factor. And when you yeah. get people together that long, it's just... You lose the—it's just like a certain spark that goes out, I think. You get so consumed with, like, the minutiae of day-to-day bullshit, paying the bills, and who's feeding the dog, and, like, did you get the mail? And I don't know. I mean, some people really long for that, I guess. But to me, that just kind of grinds you down after a while. Yeah.
0: There's the familiarity, and there's also the— I've talked about this before on the podcast—the structural violence, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, how everybody in coach is an asshole. Yeah. Right, the guy in front of you who leans back into your face is like fucking asshole. Yeah. But you know, then I lean back in someone else's face. Hey, right.
2: fuck you if you don't like it. Or yeah, like no, I in paid traffic, for this. you know. You, yeah, exactly. You are traffic. You're not in traffic. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You are. Yeah.
0: So it's the same thing in the house. It's like there's a lot of bullshit to deal with. Yeah. And that other person is there, so they end up becoming part of the bullshit.
2: Yeah. Just because they're there. And
0: yeah. Yeah. Well. It's the
2: way the system is set up that kind of. Yeah. It makes that happen.
0: Well, this has nothing to do with no, anything, though, no. which, which is good. That's yes. the way we do things here. So uh you're, you're growing up all over the place. Mm-hmm. You're moving around high school to high school. And at some point you decided to, did you decide to join the military or was that just like because your family was doing it, that's how you were going to do it?
2: I Well, when I was younger, I told myself when I was 18 or whenever I lived on my own or I was going to find a place that I really liked and move there and stay there and just live there for the rest of my life until I died. Like, that was yeah. my...
0: <laughs> the opposite of what you've been doing yeah, since then. Yeah, or exactly. The that, until was, then.
2: that was my plan. But yeah. then uh, when I actually got to that point where I had the means to do that, I found that I was so used to the the moving, the chaos kind of factor of every few years doing something different that I, I couldn't not do that. I, so I think joining was part of that. Part of the travel uh, yeah, the, yeah, part of that, but um, I think I was really just searching for what the hell I wanted to do with myself because I had after high school i um I went to away to college for the first year, and for the first semester, I did pretty well, and then the second semester, I uh, started having some issues with depression and basically just imploded and ended up losing my full ride to the college I was at and Uh-oh. all this stuff. Um, Yeah, so so after that, I, I went back to working, and I was working as a bank teller part-time and going to community college part-time, and I just, I don't know, I just had had enough, I was just sick of myself, and I just wanted to do something else, like mm. be somewhere else, be someone else. Be all you can be. It was Army Strong at that time. <laughs> oh, Army Strong. Not Army Smart, mind you, Army Strong. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. That was, but no, That was. I think that was where I was at, I... I
0: I don't know. What year was that?
2: Uh, I joined in 2003.
0: Okay, so it was after the whole 9-11 thing. Did that
2: affect your thinking at all? I think it did. Um, I think it was almost like a good excuse in some ways Mm. because I I feel like I needed some type of um, transitional event or phase or life ritual or something to kind of cross that threshold between feeling like a kid and feeling like a man
0: that's an interesting that's that's very interesting i've been thinking a lot about that how in western societies we lack those rituals Mm -hmm. to, to mark uh different phases of life and you're right that i can see how how joining the military could uh could be something yeah. like that I, I think for a lot of that's how they market it too you sure know, become a man
2: yeah i mean that's you know. definitely deliberate yeah and um i also just wanted to kind of uh maybe suppress some sides of myself that i didn't like at that point like i've always been a, an introspective like kind of sensitive uh person who maybe overthinks things and right. has maybe like not always um Inhabited my my body as fully as I could, you know, mm. kind of ignored that side of of life. And I don't know. I just was was tired of that. I wanted to be somebody else. I wanted to be lose myself in the greater <laughs> yeah. D- I was team. just thinking how, how
0: that how love works that way too. You know, you meet someone, you're like, oh, if I'm with this person, then I'll be closer to who I want to be.
2: Want to be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, yeah, it's interesting. I
2: did find out that it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. You take yourself wherever you go. Yeah, you know, and you can sort of. I don't know. I, I feel like uh, you don't you don't leave the military with anything you didn't come in with. It just maybe mm. rearranges some stuff, really? or like brings some things to the surface, or you know, right, depresses some things to the depths or whatever. But I I feel like the character you have when you come in is that's what you're working with. They don't break you down and put you back together again. They they do, but it's you can't like turn a total asshole into mm. you know Audie Murphy. It Doesn't work that way.
0: What's that like? So you were in the army, right? Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes. A, infantry. Infantry. Yeah, it was a
0: so infantry in the army. And, and forgive me, I I, I, know. Like, I don't That's know cool. the difference between a sergeant nope. and a major. Yeah. You know, no, I like, know. Don't worry about. I it. would be a complete fuck up in that environment. Yeah. Um. But, like. The infantry is sort of like your typical grunt, right? Exactly. Those are the guys who go and do what... They're not flashy elites. No. Right.
2: They're just guys who shoot things and blow things up. Yeah. Right,
0: and get shot and blown up. Yes. Yeah. It goes both ways. Yeah. So uh, so why the Army? Your dad was in the Air Force. Did you think about other branches?
2: Uh, not really. Well, I mean, I didn't want to do the Marines. I, they're... I have a lot of respect for the Marine Corps, and, and they're good at what they do, and they do a lot with a little. You know, They don't get the funding that some of the other branches get, mm. um, but they're tough motherfuckers, man.
0: Yeah, well, they've got a lot of glamour, too, don't they, they? I mean, they?
2: Yeah, they do, and and part of their, um, of their success is because they have this brand, this Marine Corps image that they sell. Right. You know, the guy in the commercial with the sword, and he's, right. like, killing giants or whatever the hell they're doing, yeah. climbing things. The few, the proud. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's part of... Um, being a, like joining the Marines is that's what you get. You get to be a Marine, you get to be a part of that. Right. But I wasn't so much into that. Um, and my grandfather, also, my dad's dad had been um, an infantryman in the Army. And so I felt like I don't know, I, I wanted to honor him too by doing World that. World War II? Or? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. He, um, he died like the year before I enlisted. But yeah, it, it was all kind of tied together. And
0: what did your dad think about you enlisting?
2: Well, it's not like he could tell me not to, you know after all he he had enlisted, but uh he would have preferred a different branch or a different different job at least mm. he was scared, you know, yeah yeah,
0: what parent wouldn't be, yeah, especially two thousand three you got two two wars going on at that point it was yeah.
2: it was bad times for sure it was uh yeah, I mean the Iraq thing kicked off in o two, mm. I don't remember exactly what month it was, but It had been going on for a while by the time I had joined. So
0: what was boot camp like?
2: Boot camp was 14 weeks at Fort Benning, Georgia in the summer. I was there from April 29th to August 16th in 2003. It was hot as fuck. And it was like the land time forgot when it comes to insects and spiders and all kinds of nonsense. But it it was weird. I mean, it's kind of like you see in the movies, but not really. (laughs) <laughs> what's the not really part it's just i don't know like because you know it's a mind game and you right I, I was i was kind of older than a lot of the other guys who had joined too. oh really yeah so i was not like the old man in my training unit but see
0: it's crazy dude you look to me like you could be in high school yeah i, I get I, guess, I, I get
2: that a lot do you okay
0: because yeah. i think thinking maybe i'm so old that no. everybody looks young no but yeah, you look so. I mean, because I read you in your email. You told me a little bit about some of the stuff that you'd been involved in, and mm-hmm. you know, I was expecting to come out here and find some grizzled dude with <laughs> well, tattoos and. I, was, a I heard bar your muscles. shout
2: out on the uh, on the podcast, and you're like, "Yeah, this guy was a former Marine, Fallujah," and I was <laughs> did like, "Did oh, I say that? <laughs> shit, they're gonna think I'm like <laughs> you
0: were not a Marine." <laughs> no, did I, it was. Did I mention something about Fallujah? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think uh, I had
2: mentioned that where I was posted was close to it. Oh, so, uh,
0: okay. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, so I was I was expecting to see some you know All like, right. like guy with shaking hands and you know <laughs> like, I got to be careful not to get killed out nah, here. Nah. You're this sweet looking young guy. Um, so okay, uh, what the hell were we talking about?
2: Boot camp. Basic training, yeah.
0: So did did you get into your body though? I mean,
2: uh, I did. I had no choice. I mean, yeah. Before, um, even before I left, I knew that I was going to be hurting pup if I didn't try and at least do something. I mean, I was a fucking bank teller, you know? I wore a tie to work every day. Yeah. I needed to start doing some stuff that was going to train me up a little bit. So. so... Well, so I knew that the Army fitness test was going to be, you know, a two-mile run, push-ups, sit-ups. So that's the stuff that I started working on. Right. And, I, you know, on my own time, I was just... You Well, it reminds me because you asked me about the decision. And to me, it's it felt like one of those things where you, you make the decision beforehand, and you know you've already made it somewhere in the back of your mind, but you... You haven't yet convinced yourself that that's what you're actually going to do, you know, so that I felt like there was a phase where I had kind of secretly to myself committed to already enlisting. But I, I still had to almost sort of like work up the nerve to, to, to do it for Mm -hmm. real. And so the training up process was definitely part of that for me, like just working out on my own time, trying to get ready for, for boot camp. But yeah, it puts you in your body. They kick your ass there.
0: Do, you, do they do that shit where there's, like, some red-faced guy screaming in your face about how you're a little piece of shit and yeah. your mama, and, you know, whatever? Yeah.
2: they hated us, which I, I don't blame them because now thinking back on it, it's like, well, to, while it's an honor in some ways to, to be selected to become a, a, a drill sergeant, those guys don't necessarily volunteer for that. They get selected by the,
0: oh, really? by the Department
2: of the Army to do uh-huh. that. And it, so that's kind of cool, I mean someone saying you're a good enough soldier that we want you to make more soldiers, you know? Right. But at the same time the war was on and those guys didn't want to be there like babysitting us and like, you know, teaching us this is the bang bang end of the shooty stick you know, they wanted to be doing their job they were
0: in Iraq you think? Yeah,
2: they were infantrymen. They wanted to be where the fight was, I guarantee, so Really? Yeah, so I don't think they were too happy being stuck stateside playing with the, the Joes.
0: Hmm. So is is the psychological thing the way it seems in the movies where they're trying to like reduce you to a sniveling, you know? It's
2: not as extreme as it is in like Marine boot camp, I guess, uh, from what I understand. Right. Um, but yeah, there's they're they're taking these people from all different walks of life, and they have to find some way to kind of standardize you right. and make you into these interchangeable parts, so that when they throw you into a situation, you're going to react in a predictable, effective manner. Mm. Every time in concert with the other people that you're working with, right. So it takes a certain amount of, you know,
0: it's a good way of reconfiguring at it. to right to and sanding off right. the edges, mm-hmm. right. So you will all fit in these same s- slots. Yeah, yeah.
2: And it can be very effective. They they they've had a long time to do it. Yeah, they know what they're doing. So yeah, there's definitely a mental component.
0: So how long was that? You
2: said 15 weeks. 14.
0: 14 weeks, which
2: is among the shorter of the army training cycles,
0: actually. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you learn there? You're learning basic weapon stuff. You're doing a yeah. lot of running and push-ups and climbing walls and shit.
2: Yeah, the first nine weeks are pretty much like the first nine weeks at any place where they do basic training. Right. But uh, infantry does what they call OSA, which stands for One Station Unit Training, which means you you don't do your basic training at one place and then go somewhere else for your specialized training. Fort Benning is the school of infantry, so mm. you stay there the whole time. Right. The first nine weeks pretty pretty standard uh and then for the last five weeks you learn more of your um you know infantry skills right as far as they try and teach you some some of these things they call battle drills which you don't usually have much success with in basic training because you still suck too much to actually <laughs> do anything in concert but uh right. yeah um yeah more advanced marksmanship um shooting at moving targets uh working with uh, rocket launchers and stuff like that. And the AT-4 was the anti-tank weapon that they trained us on. and Claymore Mines. Who the how fuck has like? tanks? Except us. You can, well, to be fair, you can do more than one thing with, uh, yeah. with a rocket if you're I motivated. G- I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But it's got armor-piercing it's, capabilities. In, that's and what and it's stuff. engineered for. Right. Is, you know, yeah.
2: AT function. But, yeah, I know. It's a, that's, that's, that was part of the problem... Um, with the army at that time was that the training methods and procedures and stuff like that hadn't caught up yet with the reality of how shit was really happening in Afghanistan right. and Iraq. It's like you have this big lumbering uh bureaucracy and it it shifts but very gradually, very slowly. Yeah. And it's tough to feed stuff back from the front and have that actually translated into a concrete, you know, difference in the training program or what have you because of the inertia that it takes to get anything to happen with an organization that big
0: yeah yeah you know I, I was watching something recently i can't remember what it was it was some some war movie mm-hmm. and what the fuck was it anyway or maybe it was talking about terrorism or something but it was it was showing how the the sort of conventional forces come in in alignment mm-hmm. and they've got you know it's almost like a like you know that board game, you know, mm-hmm. like, okay, we're going to move these armies to the left and we're going to, you know, this is going to come in from the south and this is going to happen here. And then you see the enemy just sort of scattered all over the place in these decentralized, mm-hmm. you know, individual units and all that. And and I thought, like, that same battle configuration has been happening for centuries. Oh, sure. When the When the British were fighting the Indians, mm-hmm. the British are all in lines and, you know, with their snare drums and their flutes or whatever the fuck and the indians are running around shooting from behind trees it's like the same bullshit over and over
2: yeah it is it's just um that's the nature of that what they call asymmetric warfare yeah where you have one force that's very it's trained in a certain way and and may be very well equipped and have many resources that the other side lacks but they have the mobility and the knowledge of the
0: of the terrain, of, of right? The terrain yeah. and yeah. the
2: culture and the yeah. language and all these things are huge, huge advantages in that in any type of warfare, but in that asymmetric type of warfare, especially. Yeah, that's so, your bread and butter.
0: All right, now did you ever get to a point, either in boot camp or or after, mm-hmm. where you said, "What the fuck is this? Why? What am I doing?" Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, at what totally. point did that come?
2: Oh, I my biggest like what the fuck moment was after we had already deployed. Um, yeah, it, it had been a rough a rough go there for a while because we uh, took over from from uh, a unit that had been there for a year. That was like what the standard rotation was at that time was a year. So the this first is Iraq. Yeah, yeah. in Iraq, um, we took over from the first infantry division. So there was like this time of overlap, and you know things were hairy during that time. But th- then we took transferred authority to to our units and we took over and everything was still not good but the shit really hit the fan like around october november of 2004 um that was when like operation phantom fury was going on in fallujah where the marines were like basically cleaning house in there and we were about 20 miles away from fallujah so all the insurgents who were being pushed out of there were coming into our area of operations and we were like supposed to be this big net that would right. catch all these guys as they were fleeing Fallujah. Um, and yeah, they definitely stepped up the game and I witnessed uh, one of our officers killed by a, a vehicle-borne ID and that was, yeah, that was like one of the most pivotal events probably of my life but definitely of my military service and sometime after that it was like a delayed reaction but I was just like what the fuck are we doing you know like it just all kind of came together for me in in this moment of intense like stress like I felt this pressure was mm-hmm. I don't know it's it's difficult to describe but It's the weight of the world. I mean, that's just a cheesy saying, but it felt that way. I felt like I was being crushed under this obligation that I had to the guys that I was with, but also to my own, like, sense of self and my own morality, and then also to the oath that I had sworn to, you know, protect and defend and blah, 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 and all that stuff. And it was just, uh, it was tough. It was... It's... We're very, like, jumping into the middle of things, but, um... I had some clashes with my, my chain of command, and Mm. they weren't too pleased.
0: Before that, or at that point, at that
2: point, like at that point, I was like, I I don't know if this is, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. You know, Mm. like this, it wasn't because I was afraid of being killed or anything like that. Like I had already signed that blank check, you know, so whatever. But it was more like I just didn't want to be, I didn't want to be wasted. I didn't want to be killed (laughs) doing something that was bullshit. I didn't want to die for a war that was unnecessary. I didn't want to die stupidly. Like, if I was going to exchange my life for whatever, I wanted it to be expensive, you know? I I, I didn't want it to die cheaply and dumbly. I I wanted it to mean something.
0: That's the key, meaning. If you, you die, you give your life for something that's meaningful, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. But if it's meaningless, then you're right, it's squandered, it's... And, yeah. you know and and maybe even worse than dying these guys would get their legs blown off oh, and, yeah. you know like
2: well, for I, what i know if it's if it's if it's one of those things that i was doubting even then you know even actually in theater then it, it was obvious then you know it was yeah. obvious then and it's been obvious ever since that that things were were not as they should have been there in iraq and i i really wanted it to turn like I wanted to hold on to this bit of hope that things would turn out better, that maybe it wouldn't be a total waste, and maybe the people would somehow end up with a better life. I don't know. Yeah. But so far, shit has just gone further and further downhill. And now, like, ISIS is knocking on the gates of the base that I used to be on yeah. in Iraq, you know? And it's,
0: yeah, yeah. It's, it's a strange, strange world we live in. Because, you know, I'm trying to think, when was the last war the U.S. was in? That had that kind of meaning that, that you're talking like about. was like
2: a good war, you It's know? your
0: grandfather.
2: Yeah. It's probably yeah. your
0: grandfather, right? World War yeah. II. I mean, that's the last war I can think of where I could probably get motivated to like, fuck, all right, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. something's got to be done. I'll do it. Everything since then, Korea, Vietnam, you know, Granada, all this silly, stupid shit in Central America. Yeah. What? what? Did you have any interactions with um, Iraqi people?
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, that was... The whole hearts and minds thing. You you don't win those without interacting with people, but uh, it was always tough to know exactly what was going on. <laughs> I bet. mean, to say the least, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, um, I've figured out that people the world over pretty much just, they want the same shit for the most part. They mm. want a house, they want food, they want their kids to have a better life than they had. They wanted some type of employment. Yeah. That's pretty much what everybody wants, but the culture layered on top of that is was very different to the way we did things and it was just frustrating sometimes, very frustrating. Yeah. Um not only like professionally, but like personally and when dealing with the people sometimes it was a little I don't know. Well, annoying, but yeah. then again, it's like I was the asshole that was invading their countries, I'm like, what yeah. the fuck are they going to do right
3: well
0: yeah. that 's the thing I mean, were you did anyone thank you? was anybody like "Hey, oh, yeah. good American you're here yeah
2: but then again, I also felt like many times we were being played right yeah. because um the area that we were in, especially was a very it was in the sunni triangle, um, we had Ramadi to us 20 miles to the west and fallujah 20 miles to the east so we were definitely in like a super sunni hotbed of like you know those dudes were pissed that we were there for sure we had fucked up their good time
0: the sunnis were the ruling sect that, that uh, saddam hussein was part of mm-hmm. and but only like 20 percent of the yeah they're like the, right? the
2: population um they're a minority but power wise they were right. you know disproportionately powerful right um but, yeah, that was...
0: And ISIS is the the Shiites. Mm, or are they the Sunnis?
2: I think they're killing Shiite guys. Fuck,
0: I can't keep track of I don't of know. It. It's, I, I know that... It's not, I read that ISIS was composed primarily of the upper echelon military officers yeah, from... Yeah,
2: the, the Ba'athists, uh, right. Saddam's dudes. Exactly. Yeah, they right. were definitely Sunni. They. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and, and who knows? I mean, we. it was so tough to tell whether the person you were talking to was going to sell you out or, you know, was actually going to give you good information. And the trouble was, too, that they they couldn't even be seen associating with us or they could be killed or their families could be killed or, or yeah. what have you. So there were definitely reprisals. And um, we had to take care to not get our contacts killed. And the, the people we would meet with, there was usually some type of distraction, some sort of trickery or whatever we would try and do to... Uh, you know, any informants that were going to help us out to try and protect them as, as best we could. But you can only do what you can do. Yeah. There were not a lot of us, all things considered, and a lot of territory to cover. And you just couldn't be everywhere at one time.
0: You guys generally on roads?
2: Uh, we were on the roads a lot.
0: Right. And the desert's helicopter land? Nobody's driving over the desert?
2: Uh, you do if you need to, but there's really not much out there, so... Mm. We did have to go out there like once or twice and recover crashed UAVs and stuff. But mm. that was an oddity. That wasn't any part of the UAVs or drones? Oh, yeah. The, mm. the the unmanned aerial vehicles. Right. Yeah. They were still pretty shitty at that point. It was like this little <laughs> thing, a little weed whacker flying in the sky. But, uh, yeah. yeah, nothing like they eventually became.
0: So what's it like if, if you want to quit? I mean, if you have this sort of crisis of conscience. Yeah. And you're, what, what's the term in theater? In, yeah. Can you
2: quit since it's a volunteer army, or you, are you in and you're that's it? It was tough. Well, you you can you can you can always quit. I guess it's just are you prepared to deal with the consequences of what that means?
0: So the consequences are what dis, dishonorable
2: discharge potentially. Yeah. I mean, I think if someone had had uh, examined me and seen the state of mind that I was in at that point they probably wouldn't have thrown the book at me but who knows i mean maybe they i did hear that the battalion commander wanted to make an example of me but i don't really that's that's a problem yeah yeah um
0: it's true because if if you get off easy right. half the battalion's going to want out right
2: yeah it was it was definitely a very tough time because like i said before i was very torn between like what i felt was right and what i felt my obligation was and also I knew I was going to get fucked if I said no. I've had enough, you know. Like I could have ended up in Fort Leavenworth military prison
0: for disobeying orders. Yeah, sure.
2: It? Yeah, I mean.
0: Yeah, they've got they the to make the punishment's got to be horrible. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because what you're trying to get. Now, what about these guys in the National Guard? What, what the him? fuck is up with that? You join the National Guard thinking you're going to be like you know riding on yeah. a boat on the off the coast of Florida. Oh, and yeah. Next thing you know, you're in fucking Iraq.
2: Yeah, that was a huge bait and switch. I think. Holy
0: fuck. Yeah,
2: that sucked. I, I don't know. Those those guys were.
0: I mean, at least you sort of knew what you were getting well, into. Oh yeah, and right? we were professionals. You yeah, know? I mean
2: that's the difference. At least the way that's the regular army guys see themselves versus right. the National Guard guys. They're weekend guys. Right? Yeah, yeah. And not to say that all of them are bad soldiers. I mean, a lot right. of them are super high speed guys. But generally speaking, we you know lived, breathed, ate, chat, army twenty four seven. That was my life. So yeah. to compare me to like a National Guard guy, I would have felt a little, <laughs> you know. As yeah. an infantryman, you don't have a whole lot other than your pride sometimes. <laughs> You're the dumb guy getting shot at on the front line. I mean. Right. Granted, we're not all dumb, but right. you know what I mean? People think that about you. Yeah. So sometimes you have to hang on to whatever little scraps of... <laughs> I noticed when I
0: said the National Guard, you were like, Yeah, what about him? Eh, like, uh,
2: no, I mean, that's <laughs> it's a shitty gig, man. They yeah. got fucked, those guys. Yeah. I, and I, I do feel, you know, that on the one hand, it's like, you knew it could happen. On the other hand, it's crappy that it that it actually. Well, but it had
0: never happen. had before, right? right exactly. I mean, that was a whole not uh, like that. Like Bush was like, yeah. "Oh, you guys are going overseas? Like what? Yeah. What are you talking about?"
2: I mean, if you look at it in a really uh, like horrible, calculating sense, it's a it's a good way to see how your guard guys do in combat, and also, it's a it's an experience multiplier for the guys who go and get some time overseas and come back. And I'm not saying that I think. That it's a good thing. I'm just saying like, I could see how the powers that be would be like hey, if we get some guard guys in the mix it's not only going to ease up the burden on the active duty guys but it's going to spread around some combat experience it's going to, I don't know I'm sure there's money involved somewhere, somehow
0: Yeah. Were you politically uh,
2: aware? Somewhat
0: I mean, were you thinking about Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld? Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. It
2: was, which it's it's such a dichotomy because I thought those guys were such douchebags, but at the same time, like, I had signed up, and I knew that Iraq... At that point, I think the whole mystery of the uh, WMDs that never were had already... More or less been resolved. Like okay, there's nothing. So when I joined, I knew that whatever was going on in Iraq was bogus.
0: So you weren't under the impression that uh, Saddam Hussein had been behind 9/11 or anything.
2: No, like fuck that? no. Yeah. I mean, he was an asshole. Okay, yeah. that's the briefing we got in Kuwait on the way up there. Like, hey, Saddam was an asshole, but he could keep the lights on. Right. You know. Oh, really? Yeah. That's they weren't. Yeah, they the guys that um, briefed us, the intel guys and the officers and stuff who ran those presentations, they didn't necessarily sugarcoat things. They weren't necessarily uh trying to blow sunshine up everyone's asses i mean they they let it be known that you know we kind of rocked the boat here uh to say the least and saddam was he ruled poorly i guess you could say but but powerfully you know yeah with our power yeah
0: we put him in we armed him we funded him (laughs)
2: yeah it's convoluted i mean it's again it's very it's tough to, like, justify a lot of things. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So tell me about, I, I mean, you know, you pick the order in which we talk about stuff. But okay. But we were talking about you Well, yeah, I
2: mean, I know you You said you've talked to a couple other guys. I didn't know what, what you had learned from them and what you still wanted to investigate or... or... Oh,
0: I, you know, just want to hear your experience, you know, okay. like how you changed as a man and, you know, whatever you're comfortable talking about that you saw or, or yeah. heard about or other people that you, you met there. Um, did you know, for example, t- today, you know, as we're talking, uh, the Supreme Court just um, mm-hmm. validated gay marriage across yes, the country. Yes, damn time. Um, did you know anyone who was gay in the military?
2: I did, actually. Um, I had a very close roommate who was gay. Oh. And uh, he, I knew he was gay. Um, actually, the first time, we were in Korea at this time, and the first uh, field exercise we were on, he and I were up pulling guard or whatever we were doing you have these long conversations with these guys that you don't really know and I think yeah he he was he was definitely kind of like testing the waters because that was sort of his thing like he was gay and he was kind of you know it was, it's got to be a lonely experience if you're gay in the military yeah. and, and you, you're not free to you know make that known or ask people like straight up like hey are you gay or whatever but anyway we got to talking and I asked him like this might be an off-the-wall question, but are you gay? And uh, he was shocked. He was like, <laughs> "How did you yeah. know?" Uh, what, was it a
0: gaydar situation? Or I don't know. Maybe you? my
2: gaydar was just was just really good. I'm not sure what right. exactly it was, but he was definitely um, not uh, the you know the stereotypical like conception of. of a guy whose are you would definitely get pinged. He wasn't prancing no. around. No, he wasn't. No scarf. On his, In his own time, sure. Like, if, if when it was just <laughs> us in the barracks, like, uh-huh. and I knew everything, it was cool. So he could pump up the Christina Aguilera if he wanted to. <laughs> I didn't give a shit. Like, he could bring a guy over if he wanted to. I didn't care. Right. So... Yeah.
0: Why does a guy like that join
2: the military? He was actually a cop in um, in Hollywood. And... I don't know why he wanted to join the military. I think he wanted to gain experience so that he could then go home and be on the SWAT team, or whatever they have, whatever they call it right. in there. Um, so he was using his infantry experience to get a leg up in that process. But why would a guy? Why would a gay guy like join the the army? Yeah,
0: it just seems like asking for trouble.
2: It is, but really, the majority of the guys who are going to serve with you are not really going to give a shit. Like, really? I always said, I don't care if you are straight, I just care if you shoot straight. Right. That's all that matters. I just want like, the guys around you, you just want them to be good at their jobs. Right. And so you bring each other back in with all your parts attached, hopefully, you know?
0: So you're the third guy I've spoken to. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I know three is a very small sample number, but all three of you guys have been now again and this is very far from science folks because your people listen to this podcast right so any sort of redneck asshole wouldn't listen to this podcast i guess but self-selected group yeah Yeah. very much but but i've been struck by how you guys all seem like gentle tolerant you know the opposite of my sense of the military and i guess the reason this is worth mentioning is that you're giving me the impression as did the other guys that that's not really unusual in the American military. I had this idea that everybody was a raging redneck prick from Texas. Yeah.
2: You know. Oh, <laughs> well, there are a lot of those. Yeah. yeah. But but you're telling me they're not the dominant type? I think it's just a much more mixed bag than you would probably think. Right. I think the guys who stand out are tend to be those guys just like in, in a lot of organizations the loudest ones, the most right. douchebag asshole guys who raise a ruckus over whatever and those are the guys who get noticed so those are the guys who kind of assume this identity that then gets transferred to the rest of the group but isn't necessarily accurate or fair right um people from all walks of life really yeah and you know
0: were there women in your unit or was it all male all male yeah uh what's that like i mean if vietnam at least there were like hookers and things in Iraq, you got or in Afghanistan. It's like you can't even look at women.
2: No, um, we had like one, like a couple who um, were working with us, like female soldiers were working with us during the elections, like the first Iraqi elections that they had in two thousand five, uh, to work with the women, because you know right. cultural customs dictated yeah, that, you yeah, can. you know the whole deal. Yeah, um, yeah, there. But that was brief, and then there was a, a female uh nco who was there but i can't remember what her job was anyway yeah so but very few i mean it gets to the point where you can like literally smell them (laughs) yeah yeah like if you're somewhere (laughs) and a woman has walked through right like you you, can tell yeah Yeah. your your senses just get very because you don't just smell like dude sweat and dust and you know the clp the the gun lube that you put on your rifle and stuff like that anymore Mm -hmm. it's like "Mm, that's something i haven't detected in a while yeah but yeah
0: so there's no booze no booze
2: although there is booze. yeah Yeah. well
0: there's always always ways i'm (laughs) sure but but it's not like you know you can't like come back from a mission and like go down and have not like in not like in
2: vietnam where they had like a beer ration yeah yeah
0: yeah so there's ostensibly officially no booze right uh weed were people no. getting high?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean you can get hash in places like that yeah. for sure, especially in Afghanistan. Yeah. I mean dude, all the stuff. Best I had hash there, in the world in right?
0: Afghanistan, yeah. Uh heroin? Uh in Afghanistan I know there's heroin. I I haven't heard a lot about it in the US military though. It's
2: not I don't I don't know. I didn't see any personally.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So opium, heroin. Um stimulants are more more of a thing. Oh like yeah. speed? Sometimes. Uh, Adderall, whatever. Yeah, I knew
2: I knew some guys who had, had abused some substances, for sure. Right. Uh, porn. You could get it um, sent to you, maybe. Like uh, magazines? Yeah. Uh. Uh, they had DVDs, too. And uh, they had those little portable DVD players with, like, the little shitty LCD screen. Right. And it's right. just got enough room for the disc, and right. that's about so it. So you guys,
0: like, you didn't have, like, Wi-Fi in the barracks and stuff like that?
2: Uh, we did, actually. Mm. But it was not that quick and it went out a lot and I don't know. It was actually not too bad.
0: You know the air conditioning?
2: Yeah, but it was just like wall units. Right. The the facilities that I was in when I was deployed um, were on this base called Habanilla and it had been um, actually a British RAF facility during World War II up until I think 1959. Then the Iraqi Air Force took over and it was a MiG base for a long time Mm. and then they actually manufactured mustard gas there for the Iran-Iraq War. So we would, like, poke around in some of the buildings and find, like, gas masks and all kinds of shit. Anyway, um, point is that the facilities were not were not great. Yeah. But I wasn't, like, sleeping in a, a tent in the middle of nowhere. It was right. a building. It was, like, reinforced with sandbags over the windows and all that kind of stuff. And all the guys were pretty much in one room, so you would have to, like, subdivide your little hooch off from everybody else's. And
0: was, uh, was there, like, ar- artillery attacks
2: on where you were standing? Yeah, but they were really... Uh inaccurate <laughs> i mean really you would have some dudes poorly who were tra- trained yeah they, well they would drive around in like a pickup truck with a mortar tube in the back or something right and then pop off a couple of rounds that they probably had little idea or the equipment to aim properly right. and then drive off and by the time you got there and you know there was nothing yeah, yeah. they were gone but they they just weren't very accurate but you'd hear them whizzing overhead you'd just be walking like to get some chow or to go to the gym or whatever, and you'd hear the rounds whistling overhead. It was not going out. It was coming in at first.
0: So you would go out on missions during the day and then come back to the base
2: every night? There was a constant rotation Mm. of troops that were out in sector and troops that were back on the FOB. The FOB is the forward operating base. So... Our tour was divided up into three phases. We had the first phase, which we called Mad Max.
0: And this is a one-year tour? One-year
2: tour. Right. Yeah, so you're spending about four months. And the different companies would rotate the Mm. responsibility. So for the first four months or whatever, we would be doing this one task, and then we would transfer to a different one, and then a different company would rotate into what we had just been doing. So that way you're not doing the same thing the whole time. Right. kind of splits up the risk a little bit. Right. And also um, gets everyone familiar with the whole area. So we had... The first phase that my unit did was—I oh, haven't even said who I was with. I was with um, first of the 506 Infantry, which means nothing to most people. Um, they were the, the guys who were the Band of Brothers in World War II. Uh, what does that mean? You mentioned that in your email, like. Yeah. I
0: guess there, there's like a, it's like you know we're like teams, like we're yeah. on the Redskins, which mm-hmm. you know they won the Super Bowl in 1947, like completely yeah. different dudes exactly. you know nothing's the same except no. the name
2: yeah, yeah but it's just a tradition that you carry forward through uh, time right and different units get like deactivated and reconstituted and they get reflagged. where like one unit oh you used to be the 506 but now you're something else and some other unit uh, becomes, takes on that identity so yeah
0: <laughs> it's pretty bizarre it man. is weird
2: but the army like yeah. periodically reorganizes itself and right. that's what happens so right yeah um I don't know. It's kind of one of those things where it gives you some pride in your unit, like knowing that you're not, of course you're not the same guys, but yeah. you're like, it's a, it's a standard to hold yourself to in a way. Yeah, I mean, these are the guys who do, really. jumped into Normandy and like did crazy shit. Like if you've seen the Band of Brothers, the miniseries. Yeah. And so that kind of, I don't know, you feel the weight, I guess, of of, of that historical responsibility or what have you at least i did i don't know a lot of guys probably just didn't give a shit wanted to yeah <laughs> like i said just shoot machine guns man yeah. but um <clears throat> yeah where were we three phases uh so, yeah. yeah so you so the first one was we called mad max which All was right. highway patrol route patrol there was this um highway called route michigan that ran between fallujah and ramadi and our camp was like smack dab in in between the two essentially and so part of our responsibility was to patrol the highways and keep them open for um like logistics convoys and stuff that would be rolling back and forth between the different locations so yeah we did a lot of um you know patrols and mounted patrols with humvees and dismounted patrols on foot and
0: on foot occasionally so this is uh i'm trying to picture this so this is how long is this stretch of highway
2: uh, I think, I don't even know what our official um, boundaries were for our area of responsibility. But, you know, let's say like 10 or 11 miles maybe, maybe more than that. In the desert. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you not know, like in the middle of nowhere, because the town uh, that we were um, nearby was sort of like on either side of the highway, oh, like okay. north and south of the highway and the town, or the highway ran through the middle. Right. And then further north of uh, where most of the buildings were in the town, there was the Euphrates River. But before you got there, they had, like, all these date palm groves and stuff. So it was strangely um, green and lush and, mm. uh, like, cradle of civilization you right, know? Right. Like, you could yeah. see it there, for sure. Yeah. Um.
0: And when you say keep it open, you yeah. mean what? Stop people from setting up IEDs? Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: Yeah. stop people from setting up IEDs, stop people from, uh, you know, shooting RPGs at convoys as they passed or machine gun fire or whatever, you know, whatever they were trying to do, we wanted to stop them from doing that. And if we caught them doing it, then we wanted to kill them if we could. Right. Yeah.
0: And did you have, like, um, air satellites or or somebody in the sky saying, hey, and you know, mile marker 27? Not really. No. It seems like that would have been... I guess they just don't have that much capacity. There
2: was always, you know... Something going on somewhere. And resources had to be right. used wisely and shifted around. And right. So you guys
0: are just driving up and down this yeah. this thing, sort of waiting to get shot at. Part of it, yeah. right? I mean, you're, yeah. you're you make yourself almost, bait, right? Yeah. yeah. And how many how many vehicles?
2: Uh, well, we would do it in in teams of well pairs. So you would have like two Humvees and then two other Humvees, but the but the two would work together. So you would situate one so that it was looking one way and once it was covering the other way and that way you would try and get as much of like a 360 degree coverage as you could. Right. And we also had attached to us um, a tank unit so the Abrams tanks were awesome and those guys were extremely helpful and we could radio them and say hey you know we have a suspected IED at this location can you come here and check it out and they would put it on the thermals or they would use their coaxial machine gun to shoot at it and maybe blow it up or whatever. Mm. Very useful to have around. But, yeah. um, like, as far as anyone looking down, taking care of us from the sky, not, that wasn't really a thing there at that time.
0: Right. Did you feel, or was it a big problem, uh, feeling sort of under-equipped?
2: At first, it was. Because when we arrived in Kuwait, um, we had, like, these brand-new Humvees and stuff, and a lot of them still didn't have the up-armor kit on them. At that right. point, yeah, I remember that was a big deal, yeah. and Rumsfeld said, "Yeah, you, you, you go, go to war with the exactly. army you have, not the army you. What a fucking yeah, ass. yeah, yeah. The guy
0: with a hundred billion dollar defense. I mean, budget.
2: he's right. He uh, On the one hand, that is how it works. I mean, you go with what you got. But at the same time, as if you're that guy, you're like, hey, can I get a little armor here? Can yeah. I get something to protect me Smug as asshole. the gunner? Yeah."
0: Well, and also, like, you know, we're spending how much money on all sorts of crazy bullshit and, you yeah. know, you guys are out there riding around in unprotected trucks? What the fuck is that?
2: that yeah. That's ridiculous. It, eventually, we did get kits. at pretty short order, we got some kits, and, but we had, you know, our mechanics and ourselves put a retrofit, on. yeah. We retrofitted it and we just, like, put it all together ourselves, basically, right. us and the guys in the motor pool.
0: And where are you getting gasoline? Because those, those vehicles must get shitty mileage with all that armor on them.
2: Um. I mean, I know there's we a lot of just, oil there, but. Yeah, we would just fill up. There was like a gas, a gas or station. It wasn't a truck, it was like a, like a little. Like side a local gas station? station? They had, no, not a local gas oh. station. Um, it was one on the fob oh, that okay. you would just, if you needed gas, you'd say, hey, sir, we got like a quarter of a tank. We need to fill up. Okay, so before we would roll out, we would make sure we went over to the fuel right. point and right. refueled. And so
0: when you're going out on these runs, mm-hmm. were you sort of hoping for contact or were you hoping nothing would happen
2: you kind of hope for it for a couple of reasons and one is because there's this low level undercurrent of anxiety that is always present even when you're just sitting in the barracks because you don't really know if like a mortar round is going to fall through the roof or whatever but that's like multiplied by many times when you're actually outside the wire like rolling around doing shit yeah and um it's just such a helpless feeling in a way to just be waiting for something to kick off that when something actually happens it's almost a relief because that tension is broken and then you're like okay well now I can actually do something now I can be now I can actually react instead of just waiting and just waiting for the blow to land you know yeah and uh, also you want to do your job you don't want to just be a punching bag the whole time you want to like you want to get get some you know
0: yeah (laughs) get some yeah yeah now At this point, are you feeling like an invading force? Or are you just feeling like, hey, I'm doing my job and we're all good guys?
2: Well, they weren't all good guys. Hmm. Um, There's definitely, like I said, a variety of people. And at that time, they were letting in a lot of people who they might not have considered before that. Right. Um, And plus, you just never know how people are going to react to combat. Right. Some guys get afraid some guys get sort of detached some guys you know act out in ways they shouldn't so it's it's tough so anyway no they weren't all good guys but um I definitely felt a lot of sympathy for the Iraqi people as like weird as that might sound because they were just I couldn't imagine what that existence must have been like you know and it wasn't even like this was the first thing this was probably a year plus after the initial invasion, and I mean then before that you you think of all the years under Saddam, yeah and these people had it you know maybe not where we were because they were kind of favored in some ways by the ruling political and religious classes, but it, stuff was had been going wrong there for a really long time, yeah, so I definitely felt like we were adding to that, but I didn't. I didn't want to. I tried. I tried the best I could to conduct myself towards the Iraqi people as respectfully as I could, while still killing some of them if I had to. You know what I mean? It's a tough. It's a tough line to be a professional, but also to be a person who has a heart. You know? Yeah. And it was tough sometimes to 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 bring those two different sides together. Are you at peace with your experience? Uh, no i don't I wouldn't say so it's some I've had time to think about it you know i we deployed back in o four and to into o five so it's been ten years since that experience and i've had you know I've spoken to some professionals about it and I've done just a lot of thinking on my own and I'm still not really sure how I feel about everything it's i had my reasons for, for wanting to to join and for going there and stuff like that. And for choosing the the job that I chose and all that stuff. But at the same time, I know that I, that I was involved in something that was wrong. And I, that's again, that same struggle that I had that crisis of conscience when I was like, I I don't know if I want to do this anymore. This is, this isn't what I, this isn't the way I I thought it was going to go. How did,
0: how did that play out when you had that crisis?
2: Uh, well, they, like, gave me the satellite phone, called and talked to my dad at home, and he was just basically like, well, do whatever, do whatever you think is right. And he didn't try and steer me one way or another. Um, but it was good to hear from him, so that was part of it. And also, they let me talk to the, to the battalion, um, aid station officer. He was a really nice guy
0: was there something that that triggered the the crisis or was it just a cumulative it
2: was it was just a cumulative bullshit of like I didn't really get a break for about four months um I was the uh the r t o which is the radio telephone operator they don't really do the telephone thing anymore, but I was essentially like the the lieutenant who ran my platoon of forty guys I was like his right-hand guy Mm. i carried the radio for him but i was also like his bodyguard or whatever i don't know like made sure that he had the stuff he needed and also made sure the communications equipment for the platoon was working properly and um so that was a big that was a responsibility and that was something to where like if he went out i had to go so he went out a lot Mm. (laughs) i went out a lot so i was rolling the dice a lot for Three or four months there with no break because i wasn 't part of a squad that could rotate me out uh, the other squads could send one team one day and then another team and a different right. day, and they had a, a system of rotation where sometimes if, the, if you weren 't on the team that was going out, you were just sitting there playing xbox you know
0: why was he going out so much
2: because he was in charge of the platoon yeah. it was just it, it was his job he, right. he was a workaholic for sure i mean he was a he was a hoss that guy but um yeah but I had to be there too right i didn't mind in that, a in that's a way not the
0: guy you saw
2: no no it was his it was his best friend though oh. yeah it was our uh executive officer who was like the n- next guy down from the commander mm. um, yeah he was the one who was killed by that that i e d yeah and he yeah. was i mean he was there though, the the lieutenant my my lieutenant he was there it was a fucked up situation we had um gone out the previous day and been parked in this one particular location where we were uh, waiting to just sort of scan and see if we could catch anybody doing anything we had like tucked ourselves away beside this one building and we started receiving uh, machine gun fire from this apartment building, there was like a a tall apartment building that was, I don't know how many meters away three, four hundred but rounds started popping over our heads and uh, the gunner on the Humvee returned fire with the, the 50 cal, the big machine gun. Um, but inconclusive. You know, you know, you don't always know whether or not you, you get anybody. Um, but we had this plan that the next—well, I say we. It wasn't our plan. I, in fact, I thought it was a horrible plan. But there was a plan um, the following day to come out to the same spot and essentially lay in wait. We were going to take two guys from our vehicle— and set them up in, a, in on top of a house or in a house nearby and have them be a separate, like, sniper section with a long-range rifle so that if the same thing happened again, then they'd be able to pop the guy. All right. Um, but what ended up happening was uh, we knew that was going to leave the, uh, the security detail for our Humvee short. So this officer, his name uh, was Luke Willenweber, he decided that he was going to come with us because he was a hard-charging dude and he was tired of doing all the officer desk bullshit that he had to do. So he wanted to like feel like he was contributing and come outside the wire and do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so he did. And he uh, was able to fill in the gap in the security that was left by the two guys we had sent off to be on the sniper team. But instead of just shooting at us again with a machine gun or whatever, uh, they drove a, a car and blew it up Right near where he was, pulling A security Suicide bomber. yeah, 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 um, they would just load these vehicles up with ginormous amounts of artillery shells and stuff like that, and they were very effective, uh, so yeah, it was
0: how far were you from the explosion?
2: I was probably i mean fewer than fewer than fifty yards for sure. Whew. I couldn't tell you exactly, but, I mean, it was close. I saw it blow up, and that was, like, through the windshield of where the Humvee was parked. I was actually luckily in it because I had to stay on the radio, and the radio was plugged into the mm. uh, the desk, or not the desk, of the dash right. on this Humvee that we had. And I was just scanning that apartment building that we'd been shot at with the binoculars, but I was still protected inside the vehicle. And um, it was just me and, and a gunner. And uh sitting there, and all of a sudden I just... From the corner of my eye, this enormous explosion, just this wave of, like, debris came at the windshield, and then just, you could hear the sounds of shrapnel and stuff just pinging off of, off of the vehicle and and off of the guard of the gunner's little, uh, turret shield and everything.
0: You have bulletproof glass? Yeah, yeah, it's real
2: thick. Um. Holy shit. Yeah, it was, uh, it was something else, man, it was... It was an instant transformation of that landscape where we were. Yeah. We had been uh, next to this building, and there was this little metal shack structure next to it. I don't really know what it was, but um that's where Luke was pulling security from, the this entrance to this little metal like outbuilding thing next to this other building. And um we were parked n- next to that, but further to the side of us was like an open area where they had a chain link fence and like a bunch of water hoses and electrical wires and stuff were strung across it Mm -hmm. and then the instant after uh, that VBID went off it was like everything had changed the whole scene there was like pieces of the vehicle strewn everywhere the engine block this massive engine block had been like catapulted into this empty lot next to our vehicle from where the car had exploded There were leaks in all the hoses, so there was water spraying everywhere. The lines were down. The electrical lines were down. There were pieces of the driver everywhere. I mean, little kibbles and bits, you know. Bigger chunks, like stuck in the chain link fence, that didn't make it through because they were too. They managed to stay together in the explosion. And then shortly after that, we, um, I started hearing, you know, from my lieutenant that we needed, we needed a medevac. Hmm. So then I got on the horn and right. called in the medevac, and uh, then went out to to assist. So
0: and you weren't getting sniper fire at this point.
2: No, and I and we still had the the guy on the gun. Oh, he was still up on the roof, and right. he had, hadn't been hit by any of the stuff. Right. He had he had ducked down quickly enough behind the the shield on the on the turret that he had been uninjured by the uh. all the shit flying around. Holy uh, shit. Did anyone yeah. see
0: the car approaching?
2: I didn't see a thing. Yeah. I didn't see a thing. Well, but my attention was focused the other direction because right. I was still scanning that apartment building with these binoculars. So right. I just barely had time to see this giant wave, like I said, of debris and the and the noise. I, I know I know it must have been deafening, but I don't remember hearing it go hmm. off. I know it did, but it's
0: interesting. Your your memory's visual. Yeah. 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 Was that the, the hairiest situation you were in?
2: Uh, it wasn't the first IED that I had taken, but it was definitely the biggest. And, like, it was the only time that I was actually present when I saw one of our guys get killed. And I actually, like, knew him. Hmm. Um, and he was very well loved by our whole our whole unit. That was That was part of why it was so hard for me, because this was, like, one of the best guys that we had. You know, this wasn't just like a scrub infantry guy who you know. Yeah, it, this was like a good person, like a good man, a strong person. The guy who you would think was invincible, you know. And as you said, a guy who could have stayed back at, behind his yeah, desk. He could have, but yeah. that's but that's not what you do when you're an infantryman. No. That's not how you think. You want to be out there supporting your other guys and doing the job you signed up to do. Yeah. So,
0: yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's listening to you talking about these experiences. I keep coming to the same wall in my brain, which is you're describing qualities Mm -hmm. that are positive, beautiful things that are, but those qualities are being channeled into ugly things, Mm right? Right.
2: You don't get to choose how you're used. That's the thing. Yeah. I really wanted to go to Afghanistan. Uh. I didn't want to go to Iraq at all.
0: Why did you want to go to Afghanistan?
2: Because I thought that's where the fight was, the real fight. Like, Mm. you know, say what you will about uh, who's funding who and who's responsible for what. But, I mean, at that time, they had the intel that the Al-Qaeda guys were in yeah. operating in and around Afghanistan, so that seemed like the logical place to go if you wanted to crush that that movement. Right. And so I could see myself being there, but Iraq was never a place I actually wanted to go. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well you definitely don't get to choose how you use. But I, I guess that what I'm saying is it's like I don't know. And I don't I don't <laughs> the mean,
2: terrible decency or whatever it was well, you said.
0: Yeah, I mean it's like I, I, I don't mean to degrade anybody no. at all, but it's like it 's like you can have a dog whose fierceness mm. is protective and and like wonderful, yeah, and then you can take that same fierceness and make that dog into you know a German police dog that attacks sure. jews you know yeah. it 's like same dog you know, and it 's probably a really nice dog, mm-hmm. no matter which way, but and the same qualities, but they 're being harnessed in yeah. ways and i that personally that 's what I think I would find so difficult in that situation is. I don't know if you've... Uh, I think I've talked about this on the podcast. You may have heard me talk about the Sebastian Junger. Mm-hmm. Do you know who he is?
2: Yeah, he uh, did Restrepo. Right, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. And so he's got this book, War, that mm-hmm. um, is a companion to that movie.
2: Yeah, I read it. Okay,
0: so, you yes. know, there was a part in that where they said uh, it's... The question is, why do guys do this, yeah. right? Like, why would those guys be at that base, you know, in, in yeah. that Korengal Valley? And his answer is because they love each other. They're there to protect each other. And they're not thinking about geopolitical, you know, what Bush is and what Rumsfeld does and all that. They're just there like, hey, these guys have my back, I have their back. And that's as far as their thinking goes.
2: Yeah, it can be very low level like that. It can be very basic. Yeah. But it, it triggers things inside you that are so deep that it can make you do things you wouldn't think you would like yeah, the sure. things that don't make sense you know yeah like w- like how does it make sense to to risk your life on this oath that you gave for i don't know it's just you know what i mean like when you really break it down logically it, it doesn't always pass the test but <laughs> yeah it's it's not working on a logic circuit right so that's not really a factor a lot of times
0: so getting back to being at peace with this yeah is that
2: the problem that it's not logically explainable to yourself? I, th- I think that's a contributing factor, maybe. But that, But I can look at it and look at myself at that time, too, and pick out the reasons why it would have seemed like a good idea. Right. I mean, I think part of it was, like, not suicide by cop, maybe, but, like, if I wasn't happy with who I was, I wanted to either change or die trying, you know? Right. So it was maybe a way out. Of in more than one way? I yeah. don't know. It was... Yeah, it was complicated. But I think at that time, the person who I was at that time, it was a very um, persuasive course of action. So looking back
0: now, 10 yeah. years later, um, has it? do you think it's been helpful?
2: How would you be... <laughs> I have no way to know yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, I know. That's I mean, no if, I, if I could see the person that yeah. I would have become had I not had that experience, then maybe I would, maybe life would be better. I don't know. Maybe, well, maybe you, things You would be mentioned
0: different. having uh, issues with depression when you yeah. were in college. And yeah. Do you think, was that just like a phase of life thing that would have gone away, or was that an issue that you were trying to deal with? Like, I think
2: I was trying to deal with that, too. I think there were like some existential things going on, for uh-huh. sure. And, uh... I was just looking for ways to sort that out. And like I said, given my family background and the, the cultural climate at the time and my desire for that manhood ritual or whatever you want to call it, that sort of transition into a different person, into adulthood, Right. I was just ripe for that, for the that moment. Did you get the manhood ritual? Do you feel like you passed some test? I feel like I passed some and failed others, you know? But overall, I think I did all right. I did the best I could do in a shitty place, in a shitty war. And sometimes I I get down on myself about it, you know, like, especially in the early years after everything, I carried a lot of guilt, you know? Like, why why didn't, why did I live? And and these people who I felt were greater men than I was. By far, some of them died, right. you know? Like, it's, there's no justice in the universe, really. Yeah. And that was um, a slap in the face of reality.
0: Is that something that you knew theoretically going in?
2: Yeah. 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 It's different when you see it. Yeah. Bleeding at your feet, you know? Yeah. It's different when it's really real. Yeah. Did you... Did you have to deal with things like seeing
0: children who'd been killed or
2: um, stuff like that? The sectarian violence and the really nasty stuff hadn't started as as bad as it would get yet there. So um, thankfully I was spared some of that, although I know some of my comrades weren't. They, I remember rolling up on the scene of this other um, car bomb aftermath and, uh, there's this huge red stain on the median in the middle of the road. And they was said it was from some eight year old kid, you know, and then there were houses that were close to the, the highway and shrapnel doesn't care if you're a kid or a woman or yeah. an old person or some guy who's just minding his own business. and and so, yeah, kids got hurt for sure. I, I didn't see it myself. I saw a lot of other dead people, but luckily, uh, no kids for me anyways. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm not I'm happy with with not having seen that. You,
3: that's yeah.
2: that's one thing I realize is you know, you can't unsee stuff. And so I've never understood this desire that people have to like go online and and look at horrible things and and watch people die and uh this like snuff-like fascination people have with gruesome pictures and stuff. You can't unsee that shit. Yeah. You know? Like I've seen enough of that stuff in real life. I have no desire to uh pollute my mind any further you know what I mean yeah I'm so I'm glad I'm glad and I never killed anyone just just to get that out there I and wasn't going to ask no you. I know you weren't but people always want to know mm. and it granted that was that's why I was there so in some ways again like I said I feel like I passed and failed at the same time mm. but I'm glad that I don't have anything weighing on my conscience as far as like if I had killed someone directly like hey was that a clean kill you know or even in that context like in the greater picture it, since we were there for bogus reasons like would any kill have been that's a clean kill? the ultimate question Yeah, right. and i would have to say no yeah. i mean because we we talked about it ourselves if, if we had been in the shoes of the iraqi people we would have been doing the same shit we would have been yeah. insurgents you know right so how could we hate on those guys for doing exactly what we were doing yeah
0: yeah, yeah, it's it's a it's hard being the Romans. Yeah, it you is. Know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's stormtroopers. Yeah, it's it's yeah. A, it's and Darth Cheney at the helm. Darth Cheney. Yeah. yeah. Um, so is there a community? Uh, you know, you mentioned some of your comrades and stuff. Like, I my because my feeling is that one of the hardest things about this kind of experience must mm. be that there's this isolation when it's over.
2: Yeah. I mean, there's an isolation while it's going on, too, because every person only sees their little slice of the pie. Yeah. You know, like, I can only talk about what I did and what I saw and where I was at that time and that place. Everything's so individual. The experience is so subjective that it's hard to make any real concrete conclusions about things. But, um, But there's not,
0: like, you don't go to meetings with other guys who were in Iraq and uh, share no experience i
2: i i kind of did like the group therapy thing a little bit um when we got back
0: were you diagnosed with ptsd
2: yeah from
0: yeah. the experience you told us about or?
2: uh oh that was a contributing factor for sure but i mean just overall it's really changed the way i operate right i mean not necessarily the P- ptsd alone but just the whole experience of having been in combat and been in the military and stuff changes the way i've thought about a lot of things Not always for the better, but sometimes, I think, for the better.
0: What's it mean, for the better?
2: I feel like I have gained a a lot of valuable self-knowledge and a lot of um, wisdom about what's really important in life. My priorities are very, you know, very... I don't know exactly how to put it. But most shit just doesn't fucking matter. Right. Like, when you've literally... When people have literally tried to kill you, and you have literally tried to kill other people, that's, like... That's a high-stakes game. Everything else after that seems like the volume is turned way down. Right. And most things don't really ruffle you that much. Or at least they shouldn't. They, they do, because you get irritated <laughs> about stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, if you really stop and think about yeah. it, you can shrug off quite a bit, because you're like, you know what? It just doesn't matter. You know what?
0: That what you just described is the one thing about war that I find attractive Mm. is because I can remember being on the road and one of the things I really liked about traveling in India, Nepal, you know, whatever, Mm. like places where, where life and death are very close to each other. Yes. Is that exactly what you described. It's like all the trivial bullshit gets scrubbed away Mm -hmm. and you know, if I'm, if I'm hopping a train in the Andes and I can fall off the fucking train anywhere and no one will ever find my body or mm-hmm. some guy will kill me and why not, you know, and rob me, there's no reason not to. If I'm dealing with that level of reality... I'm not worried, like, oh, if I smoke joints, I'm going to get lung cancer or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I might have smoke diarrhea. Him if you got him, dude. Exactly, because who gives a fuck, <laughs> exactly. right? You're dealing with things on
2: such yeah. an elemental level.
0: Yeah. And that is relaxing to yeah. the brain.
2: Memento mori is like my motto. Yeah. I don't speak Latin, so hopefully it's mori and not mori, but whatever. <laughs> the, we get you the know idea. what I mean? It's yeah. a, that's like a hugely important concept to me nowadays. Yeah. Remember that. It's all bullshit. Remember that you're going to die, which is... It's a humbling thing, but also it's a comforting thing. Because, yeah, yeah, maybe nobody's going to remember who I am 50 years from now or 100 years from now or whatever the fuck. But everybody... Yeah. gets ground down to dust eventually. Exactly. And Unless you're Jesus or Hitler, you're not going to hang around too long. And even if you are, well, I, mean, I don't, don't yeah. want to anyway, offend anyone. But you know what I mean.
0: I mean, it doesn't matter if they build a fucking pyramid to yeah. you.
2: You're still dead. Yeah. You know, like y- yeah. all
0: your illusions, whatever. At the end of fuck. the game,
2: the king and the pawn go back in the same box. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been a really valuable perspective shift for me. But it's also, I feel wide in this gulf that I feel between. My experience and, and like being a veteran and the way most people see things, you just get further and further out, it seems like. And that process of bringing you back in and reintegrating is very difficult because you've just seen things people can't fucking imagine, you know, or like you can, but it's not like it's not the same as when it actually happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, like I've got a buddy who's a fireman, mm-hmm. uh, Justin. He, I, he was on the podcast once. I don't know if you heard that. He's a great guy. And you know we'll go out for a beer and you know talk about the week and you know whatever. I played some basketball and hurt my finger and yeah. you know. And what'd you do? Oh yeah, well let's see. Last night I oh I cut this dude out of uh, a car. Yeah. You know. Yeah, he, well, he was dead. You know, his head was like splattered all over the place. And. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I can't imagine that. You know. I yeah. mean. And he's pretty cool about it. He's relaxed. He's a chill guy. But how the fuck do you live with that? I mean...
2: It t- I think it takes a certain kind of person.
0: Yeah. And, and he's not a hard ass at yeah. all. He's not dead to to pleasure and love. and, right. and He's not... He ha- he's a very vulnerable, open-hearted guy. So... And to me, that's amazing, you know, to hold on... Or my wife. She's a doctor. She's mm-hmm. amputated limbs and she's had... She can't even remember how many people have died in her hands. Yeah. It's
2: it's a tough combination, I think, to have coexist in one person. But yeah. if you can pull it off, you can, you can do a lot of good for a lot of people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Especially with that, if you can maintain that sense of perspective that mm-hmm. you're talking about, which is hard. Yeah. I mean, in a way, you've been given this gift of experience. And now right. the question is, what do you do with it? What do you do? You do?
2: Yeah. <laughs> but then... Part of me is like, well, why? Why do I have to do anything with it? I mean, I have it. I don't know. It's,
0: well, that's it. It's, hold on to it. Yeah. Maybe that's what you do with it. Maybe you just don't. You don't dishonor it by forgetting.
2: Yeah. You know? It's tough though, because the just daily life just wants to drag you back down. Back into re- the trivial. Re- regression to the mean. You yeah. know, You come back, and life's bullshit just starts to get to you again. You know.
0: I hear you, man. That's it's,
2: it's hard to keep it to keep it real. When, and focus on coming the home. Stuff that matters
0: is the hardest time. Yeah, whether we're talking about like serious travel or mm-hmm. whatever. Do you ever see that movie, Coming Home? Mm. It's about the Vietnam War. Jane Fonda.
2: No, well before my time.
0: It's uh, <laughs> it's a fucking movie. I know. I'm just you fucking with watch you. it.
2: <laughs> it's fucking kids, kids yeah.
0: these days. Now it's it's one of the. I would say it's one of the best um, Vietnam War movies because it's um. Jane Fonda plays the wife of a uh, fighter pilot, you know, elite asshole guy. Yeah. And um, she's, you know, they're rich. They didn't, he's off, you know, he's an officer you know, whatever. And um, so she's like one of these sort of housewives, you know, she's got a really nice car and, uh, and she decides uh, she needs to like volunteer and do something to help the GIs. So she volunteers in this hospital for returning vets. And there's a dude there she meets who's, Paralyzed from the waist down, and played by John Voight, and her husband's real gung ho. You know, we're going to go kill some Nips or, mm. or whatever they were, Vietnamese. Right. And, uh, and this guy who's been there and seen it and was a grunt, he he's like, you know, completely not into the war, and, and yeah. And so he sort of politicizes her and she starts to see things through his eyes and they end up falling in love. And there's this amazing sex scene where he's going down on her, you know, like he can't fuck her. Right, right. And then her husband comes home and she tells her husband she's in love with this, and you're like, with a fucking gimp, are
1: you fucking kidding right. me? And
0: like it turns into this whole thing. Like who's a man, you know? Like what's it? All oh, right, your dick doesn't work. That means you're not a man? Yeah. I don't think so. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's really powerful, really interesting. So, speaking of movies, Mm -hmm. I mean, not to trivialize any of this, but are there movies that, that, do you watch war movies or does it? Yeah, I do, actually.
2: Like Um, American
0: Sniper? What's your take on that?
2: God. You know, he was actually on the camp I was on at the same time I was there. Mm. The SEALs had their own little separate, like, sub-compound and in his book he actually mentions our unit and talks a little shit and says we didn't know what we were doing oh, really? whatever fair enough okay <laughs> it was the first time most of us had been to war all right, right. Yeah. like and we're not all navy seals yeah but uh yeah anyway what was my take um there have been very few movies about the war that I, that I thought were worth a shit, or at, least, or at least, like, in toto. I mean, the um, I don't know if you've seen it, but Generation Kill on HBO. I have seen it, yeah. That's, like, pretty good. That was intense. And those guys were Marines, but, like, their ex- that experience, there's a lot of truth in there for sure. Was that
0: David Simon, the same guy who did The Wire? I don't know. I think it might have been. Yeah. And then there was, uh, what was the one... Um, the
2: explosives. Oh, The Hurt Locker? Hurt Locker, God, right. that was a horrible was movie. Was that bad? I mean, it's, it got... You know how it is when you work in the field of, of whatever it is the movie's portraying, you can pick out all the parts that aren't good. Right. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a tendency to do that whenever military guys watch movies about the yeah. military. But um, the one thing that it did well was the scene... I know a ton of other guys have said this, but the scene where he comes back home and he's at the grocery store... And like the variety of stuff, and just the fact of how clean and well lit and like stocked and yeah, and how overwhelmed he was by that experience. That is real, that is some real shit.
0: So, when you speaking of coming home and dealing, you know, being overwhelmed by shit, yeah, um, what how can people interact with guys like you without being insulting or stupid or? I mean like the guys at the airport who say thank you for your service. Is yeah. that just dumb? Uh, does that matter? They don't know
2: I don't really think they they see that the way we do. Or like No, of course not. Yeah. It, yeah. And I the thing is though, I don't think it comes from a bad place for some people. For most people, it's just the thing to say, I guess, for a lot of people. I don't yeah. know. On the one hand, it I get it. You know, I don't feel like I served them. I don't feel like I have anything they sh- need to thank me for. Right. Um, but I, I don't want to be a dick and just be like, yeah, I, I didn't do it for you, fuckface, you know? <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. I don't want to turn that moment into yeah. something bad. Yeah. So I just say, I don't know. Thanks, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's tough. It's a weird situation. It like, is what do weird. you do? You just kind of want to get out of it. Mutual most of the time.
0: incomprehension.
2: Yeah. yeah, but at the same time, like I said, you you know that those people, their hearts are probably in the right place, at least when it comes to certain things. Of course, there's a lot of crossover between people who want to thank you for your service and people who want to send you places or at least don't think it's a bad idea. That's an interesting point, yeah. But, you know, generally speaking, so how, so how can people interact? Like people call you a hero. How does that make you feel? Like you're being I, manipulated? I don't. I don't know
0: when the last time anyone actually did that was. <laughs> I'm gonna call you a fucking hero. I'm gonna I'm gonna check the battery here. All Hold right. On a second. All right. Oh, yeah, we're good. We're good. We got two two bars. Okay. Cool. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I never get into these situations because you know, I, I don't thank anyone for anything. You know, I'm a ungrateful bastard. But, I mean, I I feel like I was writing about this today actually. How um, calling referring to people as heroes and buying into this whole military glorification that we do i, mm-hmm. I was watching the nba finals and it, before every fucking game you got the flag and the soldiers yeah. and you know everyone's standing at attention it's like right. is this fucking basketball or is this about let's go kill some foreigners yeah here? What, what are we doing right most of the people in the military are there because you know like you they're looking for something to do at a certain point in their lives yeah. and, Trying to get some free education, can't get a job in the inner city. The judge said you join the military or you go to jail. I knew guys that fit all those descriptions. Right. So it's like heroes? Come on, give me a fucking break. Not heroes. And by calling people heroes, you're supporting an exploitative system that pulls guys in and fucking chews them up. Yeah. For what? Not for them. Right. You know, it's for, it's either for Bush and Cheney and, you know, those guys, or it's for nothing. It's for companies.
2: Yeah, it's, it's really weird, like, uh, knowing the way things are, at least how we suspect they are, (laughs) as far as the whole, you know, Eisenhower talked about the military-industrial complex. This is not new, new information. Yeah. People just don't pay close enough attention, I guess, or don't care. But, uh. Yeah, it's, so it's it's not a, a recent phenomenon. You know that people get manipulated and forces get manipulated and the actions that your military takes overseas may not necessarily be totally above board, shall we say. Yeah. But, um, I don't know, it's just, there's just like this dichotomy between the kind of pride that you have in having served and yet knowing that what you did was fucked up. Yeah.
0: What, what do you think about Bradley Manning and...
2: Well, he's Chelsea now. She's yeah. Chelsea now. Yeah. Yes.
0: But at the time. Yes.
2: Uh, what do you think about stuff like that, or Snowden, or you know? Those guys are well. For Snowden, I consider him to be like one of the greatest greatest patriots ever, because that dude is heroically fighting to right this ship that is circling the bowl. You yeah. know, I mean, America is in trouble, and. People seem to forget, like, okay, yeah, we're winning victories, like the thing today with, uh, you know, social victories, with um, gay marriage being legal in all fifty states and all that stuff. But we're losing the overarching fight against government overreach and against people like shredding the the Bill of Rights, but all this stuff. Dan Carlin always talks about, you yeah. know, that's what's going on. Yeah. And so we get these; they throw us a bone here and there, like, oh, marijuana legalization, oh, gay marriage, whatever. But but the stuff that's still really wrong—all the NSA spying, all that stuff—is still happening, and I'm not convinced that it's getting any better. I don't think it is. Yeah. So,
0: well, I'm glad you said that because I, I kind of—I look at Edward Snowden, and I see like the best qualities of a soldier.
2: Yeah. Oh yeah. Dude's he, balls are massive. He's selfless. He is. And, and
0: he sacrificed himself in yeah, totally. the cause of something that he found meaningful. Circling back yeah. to. What we were saying before.
2: And he's careful. He's mm-hmm. disciplined. He, he doesn't um, do things that he thinks will put people at undue risk. Yeah. I think that was one of the problems people had with, uh, with Manning, was that he wasn't as careful. Yeah, um, He seemed to well, be
0: acting more out of emotion.
2: Yeah. And it, it's not like um, it wasn't important. Like the fact that the video, the collateral murder video right. and all that stuff. I mean, that was a wake-up call for a lot of people, I think. Hopefully. I don't know. But um, that's not unusual. Stuff yeah. like that. Little little things like that play out all the time. Everywhere people are deployed. Yeah. You don't want stuff like that to happen if you can avoid it. But, but war thing, yeah. sucks, man. It does suck. But I think what
0: was so uh, disturbing about that for so many people was that that wasn't an accident.
2: No, it wasn't an accident. And
0: you could hear them. They're so calm, yeah. you know. Yeah, they're pros, man. Take them out. Yeah. Oh, light yeah. that guy up. Okay, he's gone. I'll yeah. go. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, yeah, they are pros. Yeah. I don't know if you've you've read about the My Lai massacre in Vietnam. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cali. Yeah. 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 So every war we've got those things, but they're trying to con, trying to control the information flow so that nobody sees them. But-
2: yeah, but this, but these days there's so much information. The pipeline is enormous. There's all these little channels and outlets and stuff and. It's very Hydra like, you know. Mm. It's pe- people will get the word out somehow, I think. Yeah. It's too, um, I don't know, the internet is, is really enabling a lot of things. So, wait a minute. We never, we never actually
0: got your story and how you got out. What, what happened? How there? I got out of the. Of that you sort of started making noises oh, and your commanding oh, officer wasn't happy and. Yeah, yeah. You called your father and. Yeah. So, what were your options at that point?
2: Well, my options, as were pointed out to me by the—I uh, don't know if he was a Navy guy. I think he was a Navy psychiatrist, dude. Um, they sent me across across the, the road, they would say. They, there was this Marine Corps base across the road. We were mm. technically under the Marine command. Yeah. So um, went over there and spoke with their head shrinker, and he made it very clear that— I had, there were two, he he drew me a little Venn diagram, you know, there was like on one side there's this thing called malingering which is you can do your duty you're fit enough to do your duty, but you're just, you're shirking it for whatever reason, you're fucking off, you know Um, and then there's the circle that has you know, like legit like PTSD or whatever which it was so short, it was like relatively soon after the event that I started having some issues, but at the same time it I feel like I was kind of a canary in a coal mine, sort of. Mm. Maybe the other guys just were a little slower than I was because they didn't think the same way I did or whatever. But, um, yeah, so he presented those two options to me, and he made it pretty clear that he, at least at the time, I felt like he was just basically saying I was a bitch, you know? And I felt very insulted by that because I was having a real crisis, and... I, was, I didn't feel that I was malingering. I felt like it was... I don't know. I, I didn't feel like I belonged in that in that circle. I felt like I was having a legit issue that I wanted to be taken seriously and to be handled appropriately. But I felt like I was probably going to get fucked no matter whether it was legit or not. You know? and
0: what, what was happening? Were you, trouble sleeping?
2: Yeah. Emotional stuff? It's like... It was like there was a video in my brain of that day and that time specifically when uh, Lieutenant Weber was killed and it was just on repeat. I couldn't turn it off. Right. I kept seeing it. I I got no rest mentally The mo- for any moment I was awake, you know, and then even sleeping really wasn't that great because I never could really fully fall asleep where I would wake up very suddenly or mortar would go off outside and then I would be right back to that loop playing in my head. You know, right. what could I have done differently? What could I have done better? Is there anything I could have done that would have made a fucking difference, you know? Like, did I fail? Could I... Like, if I had been a better soldier, could I have... Could we all have come home? Right. But I, logically, I knew that that wasn't possible. I mean, the injuries he had sustained were... If If he had... Been teleported magically to a to a surgery suite. The moment after it happened, he would have died. You know, yeah. it wouldn't have mattered. But mentally, you still beat the hell out of yourself, right? And so that's what life was like for me for a while. And that's the problem. The problem I was having when I went across the road to uh, speak to the the psych yeah. guy because I just couldn't handle it anymore. Something had to give. I, I needed to either say, fuck it, you know, like, I've had enough, I've seen enough, this is bullshit, I'm out, and damn the torpedoes, or I had to find some way to stay, and eventually, this is, okay, this is totally bizarre, I'm not a religious person, I'm like an agnostic atheist, I don't claim to know, but based on what I see, I don't see a whole lot going on up there, you know, Right. so, um, I didn't know what else to do at that time, but I was... I had been speaking to the to the the guy. I went out. He said, "Take some time and figure out what you want to do." So I'm out there in sort of like this side area, away from his office, and I was very into um, hmm, that. Was around the time that the Da Vinci Code had come out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a, okay. A long explanation, but terrible book. But I liked the um, I liked the ideas that he had about the sacred feminine. Mm. And this sort of counterbalance force that used to be more part of like the collective consciousness, but now has gone out, and now it's overpowered by this like the yang or whatever the male forces, right. like this very aggressive. Uh, you know, you get the idea. Yeah. But basically, this this other side had, that had existed for a long time supposedly was was a counterbalance to that, and so I was into that idea of trying to find that counterbalance within myself because I had trained to become this killer, you know, that was my job. Um, but I didn't want to lose myself and become a monster. So to me, I kind of like, I liked that idea that there was this, uh, goddess side to things. Mm. So anyway, long story short, I, uh, I, I prayed for like the only time I can remember in my whole life Like, I I haven't been a believer in anything since I was a little kid. Like, stuff always seemed like bullshit to me, even from the time I was small. But at that moment, I was just under such pressure. I didn't know what to do. So I literally, like, had all my crap, my gear, my rifle, all that stuff. And I, I like, knelt down and started praying outside this (laughs) shrink's office on this Marine Corps base. Like, and I was like... goddess (laughs) Goddess. help me you know show me the course that is going to be the loving like thing to do don't let this place and this job and this war like overwhelm me and send me down the road that I don't want to travel like show me what I need to do to Mm -hmm. get out of here but be okay like how can I how can I how can i do this and i felt like i answered myself of course but the answer that i felt i got was like just stay you know don't don't do it for whatever the big reason is do it for like what we talked about do it for the for the other guys cuz if i leave guess what somebody else has to be trained to take my spot who doesn't know the job as well as i do so that's putting all my buddies at risk. I'm one less guy who's going to be there, one less pair of eyes that's going to be there to look for danger, one less guy who's going to be there when the shit hits the fan. Because I already knew at that point that when it actually happened, I was okay. Like, I could handle it at the time. It was just afterwards that things were right. weird. But, you know, times before that, too, when shit had gone down, I was, I was cool. So, I knew that I would be taking away an asset. Mm. And... I couldn't do that I couldn't live with myself so that was the answer that was the loving thing for me to do was to say you know what it's gonna suck and this is terrible but I can't leave the guys Hmm. so that was the conclusion I reached
0: how much longer were you there
2: about seven months picking up the oh I'm sorry I'm a drummer (laughs) so I unconsciously (laughs) drum on everything yeah um
0: seven more months wow
2: yeah But at that point, I I had kind of surrendered, you know? Like, I had realized that there was only so much I could do to influence the way things were going to turn out. Yeah. And it was very small. So the best I could do was just sort of float, you know? Just be the leaf in the stream and let it take me where it was going to. And maybe I could nudge it here and there by making smart choices or lucky choices, maybe. But there wasn't a whole lot I could could do. Just my little piece and whatever was going to happen was going to happen and i was just going to have to be okay with that
0: and did uh did that help the the sort of mental phenomenon calm a little bit yeah it did so it's a question of acceptance in your case yeah
2: it's accepting the fact that you might not make it which i already had i kind of knew that but it's more like it's more than that too it's accepting the fact that this is life for you at this moment. And yeah. unless you want to go down this other road, which, okay, to be fair, did I pick the path of least resistance, like, in that whole situation? Fuck yeah, I did. But that was also part of it, you know? I didn't want to be fucked for the rest of my life, assuming I made it out. Yeah. And I still go back and forth about whether or not what I did was, uh, whether I made the right choice. Yeah. But I don't know. You ever read Catch-22?
0: Yeah. When you were talking about seeing the psychiatrist, I was thinking about that whole situation. Yeah, yeah. That's a great book.
2: It is. Oh, there's another great book. It's fairly recent, I I guess. It's by this guy, Phil Clay. It's called Redeployment. Mm. It's awesome. Really? Yeah. I mean, it's so good that it's one of those ones where I had to kind of like put it down a couple times and then start reading it again. Um, But it's almost like a uh, The Things They Carried style um, novel done about the war in Iraq. Oh. And... Uh, deployment. Yeah, it's awesome. Phil Clay won the National Book Award and all oh, this stuff. Okay. It's uh, it's intense. I'm still reading it, but you should check it out. I will. Thank
0: yeah. you. Yeah, when I finish writing this book, I'm going to go to some some tropical island somewhere and <laughs> just, just read kick back novels. And read. Yeah. I haven't read a novel in years, man. And it sucks because I love novels. I Short yeah. stories. I love it. I love just going somewhere else, you know. But... Um, this is great, man. Thank you. Is, is there anything that, uh, that you anticipated talking about that we haven't covered?
2: Not really. I mean, there's all the stuff that doesn't really matter except to like the grognards in the audience, like who I was with and where and and what we did and what I carried and all that stuff. Like that shit doesn't matter. The people who want to know that stuff that they'll either already know or they'll know where to look it up. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like I, um, course there's always so much you leave out
0: of course where you go from here what's i mean you before we turned on the mics we were talking about how you ended up at this this farm in southeast portland yeah which is a lovely place i mean uh, it's yeah it's great and you're sort of thinking maybe you'll stick here for a while or
2: yeah i like it here this is my home now oh good um and of course i came to portland intentionally so this is one of the few places I think I've lived in life where I'm like, you know, what, I really want to go there. Not because something is forcing me to go there, but right. just because it seems like a cool place to be.
0: And you said you came, part of the reason you came out here involved a woman. Oh, is, yeah. Is yeah. that still in the picture? Or that's, <laughs> no. No? <laughs> no. All right, ladies. Yeah. He's available. I'm not available. <laughs> oh, you're not available. Oh, no. oh. I, oh, I right. have a girlfriend, but it's oh. a different woman. Than, Sorry, ladies. Yeah. He's not available. No. I, I don't know how many ladies listen to this podcast. I don't but know the ones who do are bound to be sexy goddesses.
2: They they probably wouldn't like my haircut so <laughs> It's Portland though, you never know. <laughs> well, yeah. You can change your hair, yeah, you, you
0: know, for the right woman.
2: Yeah. But but it doesn't matter. You're but it, I mean, as as far as like stuff we talked about, I I felt like I gave such a cursory overview of so many things, but I don't know. I was more interested in what you wanted to know also. Yeah, well, I think the the most you know, the, you know, what weapons you
0: trained in or whatever, yeah, yeah, I don't think most people can relate to that. Right. But exactly. I think, um, I think, uh, you did a really good job of explaining what your experience was like and, and, you know, how it affected you. And I think that's.
2: Yeah. And I, and I don't want to, to, to come off like I'm disparaging, uh, service people or, or anything like that. I mean, yeah. like I said, I'm a third generation service member. Right. And yeah, I've got my I've got my army tattoos and shit, you know? So right. it's like this is something that was a big deal to me and it, it definitely has been like well, sometimes I feel like the the guy who played football in high school and right. you now glory days or I don't want to be that guy, but at the same time, I mean, what else in life can compare to war? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's strange. I, you've probably heard me say this I read this interview years ago with a, a college football coach who was like really good and they said like what? what's the secret of being a great football coach and he said you have to be smart enough to really understand the game but not smart enough to realize how little it all matters <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's like I, I, I often feel and this is going to sound arrogant but I've often felt like I'm too smart to not to not notice how little this shit matters And so I can never really get into anything Because I'm always that asshole on the sidelines Going, wow, it's just a game yeah. Or, oh, this war is bullshit You know, it's all false premises Or, yeah. you know, this job is just you know. And so, like, on one level That's a blessing Because you have the perspective Yeah but on another level, it means you never really immerse yourself in any experience.
2: No, and it, it makes it difficult because the meaning that you find in things is something that you have to generate. <laughs>
0: yeah, which smells like bullshit yeah. if you're generating it. Yeah, you know? yeah.
2: yeah. it's tough.
0: Yeah.
2: It's, but, I mean, at the same time, I can't imagine going through life being totally unaware. Part of me th- thinks, man, that must be bliss. Yeah. And part of me thinks, yeah. what a fucking waste of a life. Well, it's
0: like being a dog, right? Yeah. I think that's why we like dogs. Yeah, it's like wow, that dog's having such a great time being a dog. Yeah, not worried about anything.
2: They're they're in the moment. You Take
0: know? a shit, chase the ball. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, listen. Thank you for this. Yeah. John. Thank you this, for coming out. Yeah. This is a great conversation. Beautiful place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you sharing your experience.
2: No problem. Uh, can I just say one more yeah, thing? Yeah, I please. didn't get to finish the one thought that I was saying. I don't want. It, I didn't want to come off like I was. Oh, right. talking shit right but i'm not going to sugarcoat it either i mean the way that i see the experience is very conflicted and the way i see the people who i serve with also someone is is you know it's complicated it's nuanced it's complex. Yeah, yeah it is and uh i just want to make sure that people understand that my opinions are mine and all that good stuff you know yeah. don't don't reflect necessarily on what everyone else thinks but
0: yeah yeah i appreciate that i, th- I think you uh I don't think anyone will think you're making blanket statements. I'm trying not to. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Yeah. Jim. No problem. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and appreciate your support for the podcast, especially those of you who do it through fundwhatyoulove.com, where you can set it up to take a buck, five bucks, ten bucks, whatever you can afford, whatever you feel motivated to throw at the podcast every month. Uh, you don't have to think about it. It's an ongoing thing. You can cancel at any time, of course. That's fundwhatyoulove.com. That's run by Danny Osman, who also does the sound engineering for the show. You can find him at emeraldcitypro.com if you have any engineering, sound engineering needs. He's great. I vouch for him, of course. He's been doing the sound engineering for this podcast for over a year now completely voluntarily uh he's a cool guy so if you have any business you want to throw his way please do thanks to basin and range for the opening music you can find them at basin and range uh there's a reddit tangentially speaking discussion group if you want to talk about episodes throw a question at me and get a conversation started at reddit just do a search for tangentially speaking all one word And of course, thanks to Bennett at Shore Design T-Shirts, another guy who's been supporting this podcast from the very beginning when I had about 15 listeners. He was there. He's still there. And uh, I love him. Never met the guy, but I love him. And I sure as hell love his shirts. So you can get his shirts at ShoreDesignT-Shirts.com. And of course, all the shirts that are at ChrisRyanPhD.com are made by Shore Design T-Shirts in Thailand and packaged and shipped to you by my mom, Julie. Uh, say hi to Julie if you order anything. She loves it when that happens. And, of course, last but not least, thanks to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear, Smoke Alarm, which reminds you to carpe fucking diem because you're going to die one day.
3: He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. body isn't in an a mood doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a bird cave singing in your chest you wanna shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one day about a reputation